Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Cara tonight. She's back from Points East. And our topic is spiritual beauty. We know in this world there are some things that have a sort of quasi-permanent beauty in this world, like the mountains and, and so on. But a lot of things like flowers and human beauty, and we, we know that that fades over time or changes. Uh, that's a sort of outward beauty. What is inward beauty? I was surprised when I looked in the Bible at how much beauty is a topic. And uh, so it's going to be fun to explore this. I particularly want to focus on one statement in Isaiah that says that the Lord, uh, it's a prediction in the Old Testament that the Lord was not going to be beautiful. Uh, and, and, and yet there are other passages that suggest otherwise, of like an inner beauty that was there. So those are the topics that we'll be exploring tonight, and I want you to uh, join us if you would. Let's open with a prayer, shall we, friends? Careful. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we thank you for bringing us together in your most holy name. You are the one God of heaven and earth. We open the pages of your word and we turn to you with our hearts and minds, Lord, to find out who you are and what it is that you would have us learn about you. Amen. Amen. Sending love to all of those of you online and getting the audio and on the phone. Let me read something. I haven't done this for a little while about who we are. The Spirit and Life Bible Study looks at the Bible through a Swedenborgian lens meaning in alignment with the teachings of Emanuel Swedenborg, born 1688, died 1772. The name Spirit and Life comes from Jesus himself, who says that his words are spirit and they are life. Spirit, which we take to mean that his words have a spiritual and heavenly meaning and purpose, and life, meaning that his words are alive and aim to bring us to life by teaching us how we are to live if we wish to become spiritual and heavenly. And since Jesus, we read, is the word made flesh, what he says of his words, we take to apply to all the words of the Bible. They all teach who he is and how to get from hell to heaven. Very good to be with you again, good friends. I want to start, our text tonight is from Psalm 90. And I want to read the whole psalm if we can to begin with. So the psalms are about in the middle of your Bible there. And we're going to Psalm 90 because there's a key phrase in the very last verse but the whole psalm, it's 17 verses, and the whole, whole psalm is, um, it's very much about transience. You know, here we are starting a new fiscal year for some people. We're, we're in July, and, you know, where did the first half of the year go? It really is amazing how, how quick that went. And, and, um, uh, and this is a psalm about permanence and transience. So let's look at Psalm 90. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Mm. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it, is, when it is past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning, they are like grass, which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath, we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. Mm. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Mm. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. 
So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Mm. Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Mm. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord of our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Yes, a very beautiful psalm. It has some interesting moments in there, uh, things that are written according to an appearance, as Scripture often does, as if God causes the destruction of humankind. You know, you turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of men. Um, but I think it's a beautiful way of expressing how history rolls and empires come into being and then they crash down and, and this sense of the Lord's presence everlastingly uh, watching over the human race. And this fleeting little moment we're here and that amazing statement that you set our secret sins in the light of your face. You know, the Lord can see who we are and... Um, and we're just here for a brief little time. Days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they're 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, but is soon cut off and we fly away. And so the verse 12 where it says, teach us to number our days is interesting because I think <coughs> pretty much forever, I think the human race has been good at numbering our days. We're pretty good at counting you know, in my daily planner, it says here that this is day 188 and there are 178 days left in a year. And, you know, we're pretty good at numbering our days. But how good are we at numbering our days to gain a heart of wisdom? That's, that's the numbering that counts. You know, there's, there's numbering and then there's numbering. And I love this bit in verse 14 and 15. Uh, you know, 15, make us glad according to the days in which you've afflicted us and the years in which we've seen evil. And then a prayer, let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. Uh, we won't expressly be looking at it tonight, but uh, try for fun sometime just typing into a Bible search engine, G-L-O-R and B-E-A-U-T as, as a search together. Glory and beauty hang around a lot in Scripture. They're, they're sort of a thing. And it's, so it's interesting here to me that at the end of verse 16, it talks about your glory, and then the next thing it says is the beauty. Um, we might see a few of those tonight, but uh, I, I had a long list of them, and, and a bunch of them we're not going to look at. And then here's this key phrase, verse 17. Wow, what, what an ending for this powerful psalm. Not just say, help us out. We're these meaningless little scum, and we come and go on the earth, and we have no idea what we're doing. Uh, you know, so just fix us up or something. But what a thing to say, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. What is the beauty of the Lord and how on earth could that be upon us? How could we have the Lord's beauty that we pray to the Lord to uh, have his beauty on us? And it's interesting that that's directly connected, it seems in the text, with establishing the work of our hands. And it repeats it again. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So we're here for this little fleeting while. We hardly add up to a hill of beans, little ants running around doing what we do. Uh, but we're praying to the Lord to put his beauty on us and establish what we're doing for this little minute while we're here. You know, establish it. Establish the work of our hands. Like make something lasting, something meaningful out of what we're doing while we're in this world. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Just establish the work of our hands. So that's sort of a text. That's what we be exploring tonight. Um, I want to look. There are many things in Scripture. There are actually more passages about beauty than we could ever cover in one evening. Uh, it was of interest to me that... Um, uh, as one might accept, uh, expect, perhaps, um, women are described as beautiful repeatedly in Scripture, but men are also described as beautiful in Scripture. Um, 
That, that's of interest to me, and we'll see a few examples of, of the many that are in there. Uh, holiness is beautiful. Garments are beautiful. Trees are beautiful. Houses, cities, gems. Now, we think of gems as being beautiful. We think of houses as being beautiful. But, you know, cities, you can sort of give or take. You have kind of a love-hate relationship with cities. But it talks about cities being beautiful. It talks about Zion being beautiful. And here, of course, it talks about the Lord being beautiful, which makes sense that he would be the origin of that spiritual beauty. So let's read some passages about beauty and try to ponder what's going on here. I want to turn all the way to the left to the book of Genesis at the very beginning of your Bible. And first of all, we'll, we'll read about a few people who are beautiful here. Let's go to Genesis chapter 12 and start at verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. So Abram was living in the, in the Holy Land, in the land of Canaan, but he was just a sojourner there. But there was a famine in the land that drove him down to Egypt. Verse 11. And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Yes. First thing scripture teaches us, beauty is a problem. <laughs> Much better to be not that great looking, but, you know, especially when you're traveling and so on, it can be an issue. So uh, Sarah's going down to Egypt, and there's a problem that she's beautiful. So it's interesting, Abraham... I don't know if you know the story, but there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isaac is uh, Abraham's son. Jacob is Isaac's son. And so here's Sarah, or Sarai, who's the wife of Abraham. And she's described as beautiful in the text. Look at Genesis chapter 24. This is when Isaac goes, his servant goes to find Isaac a wife. Verses 15 and 16. And it happened before he had finished speaking that, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin. No man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. Yes. So Abraham's wife is described as beautiful. His son Isaac's wife, he ends up marrying her, is described as extraordinarily beautiful. Look at chapter 29 in Genesis, verse 16, Jacob goes to work for Laban, and look at verses 16 and 17. Now Laban had two daughters, the name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate. But Rachel was beautiful, a form and appearance. Yes, a form and appearance. Interesting. A beautiful a form and appearance. And so Abraham's wife is beautiful. Isaac's wife is beautiful. Jacob's wife is beautiful. All, all three of them, the, the beauty of their wives is described in Scripture. Uh, the next one might surprise you a little bit, though. Have a look at uh, Genesis 39, verse now, this is Joseph, and he'd been taken captive and all that. And uh, look at verse um, 6 in Genesis 39. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. This was his master Potiphar, who was an Egyptian. And he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Oh, in form and appearance. Joseph was handsome. Hmm. Okay, he was handsome in form and appearance. All right, and then what happens in verse 7? It's and a problem being good-looking, friends. We can be thankful we're not. Look at this. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. And she said, lie with me. Yes, and this became a bit of a problem. He didn't, you know, give in to her or anything. But, but uh, so Joseph was also beautiful or handsome. 
and uh, look at Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. Very interesting statement to me. I had forgotten that Moses was beautiful. Joseph's beautiful. Moses is beautiful. He's a beautiful child. And it almost sounds like, you know, they were killing all the male children back at that time, as we read in Exodus chapter 1. And it almost sounds as though if he hadn't been quite so good looking, this time it's an advantage. He got saved by being good looking because she hid him away for three months and kept him alive. Uh, the fact that he was beautiful uh, led to his, it said, doesn't it say? Because he, you know, when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him for three months and, and, and protected him. And then he ended up getting into the Egyptian court, adopted um, by the da Pharaoh's daughter and so on. And uh, presumably his looks didn't hurt that situation or whatever. So I don't think of, of Moses being good looking, but that's very interesting that he's definitely described there as good looking, isn't he? Uh, let's look at, let's turn to the right. Okay. Go through the five books of Moses and Joshua and Judges. Let's get to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 9. Just for the sake of giving our dear reader something to chew on, let's read verse 1 there and then go to verse 2. <laughs> there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Ab. Baal, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, oh. a mighty man of power. Well done, well done, okay, <laughs> go on. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Interesting. He's both tall and he's the best looking person in the nation. And he ends up becoming their leader. It's striking. Saul was, was very, very good looking. And um, so that's interesting. Saul becomes the king. And then Saul's personality sort of uh, run, runs into trouble. He gets on the rocky ground there. And uh, David, this young David comes along. Look at chapter 16. And, uh, oh, let's, let's read from verse 1 here. Okay. Saul had gone off the rails, and Samuel was the prophet. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Yeah, that's, a, that's an honest fear. Yep. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Okay, that'll, that'll, cover, that'll cover it. He said, I'm just, I'm just doing a sacrifice. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. Okay. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? Oh, it's just great to be a man of God. You know, people sort of tremble when you come into town. Go on. And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Uh -huh. So it was that when they came that he looked at Eliab, and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So the, the, look at this fine specimen. You know, this has got to be the one, right? But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance. Oh, interesting. Don't look at his appearance. Or at his physical stature, mm. because I have refused him. Mm. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The heart. Now, isn't that an interesting answer to our question about what spiritual beauty has to do with? He's not talk, talking about how you look in the in, outside. He's talking about what's inside, what, what's in your heart. 
That's what forms a spiritual beauty. Go on. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Uh-huh. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Look at that. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Mm. So he went and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Interesting that you had that sort of thing right before there saying, oh, don't go by the good looks. And then the youngest comes in and he's incredibly good looking, you know, so... It's just interesting, isn't it, that the text kind of has it both ways there. So, you know, the Lord looks on the heart, and yet nevertheless, David uh, was good looking, it says, uh, and ruddy, like he would sort of tan out with a sheep or, or whatever. And uh, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, and uh, he eventually became the king. So what do we got here? Joseph was good looking. Moses was good-looking. Saul was good-looking. David was good-looking. Hmm. So we had three women, four men. Good-looking. Okay. Um, oh, let's... What do we have in... I just have various different passages. Let's just go... Let's back up and go to Exodus chapter 28, shall we? Because those are the sort of people that I wanted to cover. Uh, let's go back to Exodus, which is the second book... And look at 28. This is about Aaron. Moses' brother was Aaron. And Aaron was given these garments for his priesthood. He became the high priest of the people. And look at verse 2 there. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Interesting. You got holy, glory, and beauty in the same verse. Right? Holy garments... And interesting that these garments of the priesthood were for glory and for beauty. They're expressly for beauty. I mean, it's an interesting word to, to use there. But that's, that was part of the picture. Uh, what do we have next here? Let's go to um, back to 1 Samuel with apologies. Scooting around here. Chapter 25. When David is, uh, he's running away from Saul and he's, he and his men are living in the fields. And in 25 verse 3, we read about Nabal and Abigail. The name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. Mm. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was the house of Caleb. You know about those Calebites. And um, <laughs> uh, so uh, she was beautiful and, what did it say, of good understanding? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Beautiful like having a good mind, right? She was, she was beautiful and had a good mind. What did it say before, both in form and appearance or something? There's just interesting language around it. And Nabal, his name actually means fool, if memory serves. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and he really was an idiot. Uh, he mistreated David and everything. And uh, and interesting that it says that he was evil in his doings. Is that what your translation says? Evil in his doings. Yep. Yeah, evil in his doings. So there's beautiful and then there's evil in, in his doings. So there's a contrast there. I think it's not only talking about a physical beauty, but a kind of spiritual beauty that she's a good person. And she really is very beautiful to to David, and her husband ends up dying. She ends up marrying David. Um, so that's an interesting little story there. Uh, let's go to, okay, turn to the right and go through First and Second Kings. Let's go to First Chronicles. What I like to do, as you may know, good friends, in this Bible study is to look at passages in the context of each other. It just interests me that you'll get words like glory 
and beauty and holiness hanging around together and good understanding as opposed to being evil in your doing. You know, because you start to form a picture. So Psalm 90 just says, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, but it doesn't tell you what that is exactly. We, we just, whatever it is, we want it. But these other passages kind of fill in a little bit, don't they, of what it is we're looking for. Uh, look at verse 29 in 1 Chronicles 16. Um, 16. Mm -hmm. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Glory. Bring an offering and come before him. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Interesting phrase, the beauty of holiness. You've probably heard that before, haven't you, friends? The beauty of holiness, like, that seems to imply, if it's not too much of a stretch, that holiness is beautiful somehow. I don't think it's wrong to, to judge that from that passage. And interesting that it says, give the Lord the glory due his name. There's a worshipful second the context here. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Okay, look at Second Chronicles. What do I want here? Okay, yeah, chapter 20, Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 21. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who, could, who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness. Oh as they went out before the army and were saying, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And so they began to sing and praise. So praise the beauty of holiness. Again, beauty has something to do with worship here, right? Uh, okay, let's go into the Psalms, shall we? Let's go to Psalm 27. So keep turning to the right. You'll go through a few different things. Get to Psalm 27. Wasn't it interesting, given the fact that Moses was a beautiful child, that that was said to be a psalm of Moses. Psalm 90 was a psalm of Moses. Very interesting. And Moses as a person who you know, knew all about the coming and going of history and so on. Okay, Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Mm. What a magnificent passage that is. I think it led somewhat to a misunderstanding among some people that all you do in heaven is sort of stare gaga at God and you never do anything. You're like, wow. Um, and that's not exactly how it works. But uh, there's more active ways to sort of participate in the beauty of the Lord. Um, that angels find in heaven ways of being useful and so on. But it's a very beautiful, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Another passage about the beauty of the Lord. So it's not just people and cities and trees and gems and so on, but the Lord is beautiful and holiness and worship are beautiful. Turn just so the page to Psalm 29, verse 2. Oh, let's read verse 1. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Mm. Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Okay, good. Thank you. There it is again. Psalm 39. This is an interesting one. Th 39 verse 11. When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, uh -huh. you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Oh, very interesting. Very interesting that when the Lord rebuked, like when we're going through temptation, when we're going through difficult times, that beauty melts away like a moth. And then what does it say? Surely every man is vapor. Vapor. <laughs> Something that passes rather quickly. That's right. 
So your, your beauty is consumed away. So when it says, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us, it's about a lasting beauty. What is that lasting beauty? When you get rebuked by the Lord for iniquity, then your beauty melts away. Um, mm. Okay, that's, uh, that's good. How about Psalm 50? Psalm 50, verses 1 and 2 there. Oh, and 3. The mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. And here you go. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. So it'll be tempestuous around, but where it's coming from is this Zion, which is called not just beauty, but the perfection of beauty. That's where the Lord is going to shine out of this magnificent. Zion is the name of that mountain uh, that the temple in Jerusalem sat on, and it has to do with love and so on. So that this... Uh, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. In the old King James says, God has shined. In yours says, God will shine. Our God will come yeah. and will not keep silence. Interesting. Powerful. Okay. And how about Psalm 96? Shall we try that? Okay. Psalm 96, verse 9, uh, verse 8. Okay, verse 7. Uh, okay, verse 6. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Yes, beauty is in the Lord's sanctuary. That's where beauty as it is in itself is. It's in the Lord's sanctuary. Go on. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. There's glory again. Mm -hmm. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Yes, there's the beauty of holiness. It seems like a thing, doesn't it? It keeps coming up. The beauty of holiness. Interesting. All right, let's... Uh, oh, one more. Psalm 149, right toward the end of the Psalms. 149. Hmm. This is, this is a powerful one. It's in the same kind of... Let's read the first four verses there. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the, in the assembly of saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Wow. Now that is one of the clearest passages we've read tonight. Salvation is an inner beauty regimen, right? The process of undergoing salvation beautifies you. What kind of person gets beautified? The proud, the arrogant? No, it's the humble, right? In the old King James, the meek. He will beautify the humble with salvation. And you notice the very th next thing it says, let the saints be joyful in glory. So glory, beauty, they're hanging around together in Scripture. And, uh, and the idea that salvation beautifies us. So we have something of an answer to our question tonight. To achieve inner spiritual beauty, just go through salvation. Right? Not too hard. Yeah. We can do it over the weekend. Okay. Yes, go through salvation. That The Lord will beautify the humble with salvation. Such a beautiful phrase, isn't it? Kind of amazing. Okay, a couple of passages in Isaiah. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 4. So turn to the right. You get to Isaiah pretty soon. Isaiah chapter 4. Verse 2, this is a prophecy of when the Lord comes into the world. And what does it say? In that day, 
The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Beautiful and glorious. What is this? They just hang around together in the text. I wasn't trying to find this. It just is it's there. Go on. And the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. So this associates beauty, the branch of the Lord. This is an expression that's used a number of times. I think it's a very interesting idea. You know, it says elsewhere that the Lord is the, the root of Jesse. Uh, um, like uh, the idea that is sort of an offshoot, like... Uh, of God that came into this world, this branch. And one of the things that will be is beautiful and glorious. The Lord, when he's in this world, will be beautiful and glorious. That's what I get out of that passage. Uh, Isaiah 28. Let's go to 28. Hmm. What am I looking for here? Verse 4. Oh, yes. We'll start at verse 1, I think, right? Woe to the crown of pride. Ah, so you had humble people who were beautified with salvation. Now you get the proud, pride, proud, proudful people. Okay. To the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, ah. which is at the head of the verdant valleys, to those who are overcome with wine... Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, will be trampled underfoot. And the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valley, mm. like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees. He eats it up while it is still in his hand. Yes, it's a very quick, fleeting thing. And then verse 5. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory, glory. and a diadem of beauty, beauty to the remnant of his people. Why is glory and beauty always hanging around together? In that day, the Lord of hosts. So again, the Lord will be beautiful and he will give this beauty to his people. That's what I gather from that, right? The crown of glory. Um, so that's cool. And uh, uh, Isaiah 33 This is again about the Lord. It's talking about people who walk uprightly and speak uprightly and stop his ears from hearing of blood and all that. And verse 17. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. Hmm. They will see the land that is very far off. I think that's not much different than saying the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. You know, you'll see the beauty of the king, which I take to mean the Lord there. Uh, uh, Isaiah 52, uh, verse 7. And <laughs> the crew who, who works on the Bible study here could tell you that I, I spent a good half an hour before Bible study scratching out. I've got like a hundred passages scratched out. It's, no, no, don't, no time. No, 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 no. So we're not reading every single thing we could possibly read. Just want you to know that. 52, verse uh, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Yes, what a striking statement. This is messianic, right? It's about the Lord coming into the world, I assume. And that how beautiful are his feet on the mountains. The feet would have to do with his outer self. You know, even his outer self was, was beautiful uh, in this world. And he's walking on the mountains. He's coming from divine love uh, and love of the neighbor. And what seems to make him beautiful in this passage is that he's bringing good news. He's bringing peace, good tidings. He's talking about, you know, he's offering us salvation. Right? That makes him beautiful. It 
that, that makes him beautiful. Good, good, good. Uh, how about Isaiah 61, verse 3? We're actually coming down the home stretch, good friends. Most of these are in the Old Testament. 61, verse 3. Oh, yes. To console those who mourn. But let's read the first three verses there because oh, okay. this is what Jesus, when he gets up in the temple, this is what he, he opens the book of Isaiah and this is what he reads to everybody about himself. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Glorified. That's another passage that would come up with glory and beauty in the same, those roots in there. And beauty for ashes. So isn't that about the salvation? When you go through temptation, it's like your beauty melts away like a moth. Swedenborg even says that, that uh, in the spiritual world, if you can see people going through temptations and those difficult spiritual crises, uh, they look unclean, you know, and, and you have that feeling when you're going through that, that it's just like you're nothing to write home about, you know. Uh, uh, the, um, uh, but here's the Lord coming to give, instead of those ashes, gives you beauty. Instead of mourning, gives you the oil of joy. Instead of the spirit of heaviness, you get the garment of praise. So this is about the Lord saving us. Again, beautifying the humble with salvation. So this is a process that the Lord wants to give to us. He's beautiful. His feet are beautiful. And he wants to give us some of that beauty. I just have two passages in the New Testament I want to read. And none of them are in the Gospels, although there's lots about that in there. But um, let's go through the four Gospels, through Acts and uh, the Epistles. Can you get back to the Hebrews, which is sort of halfway between Acts and the book of Revelation? And I want to go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. And there's a whole riff about faith in here about all these images of faith in the Old Testament. And I just wanted to read verse 23 in Hebrews 11. Verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. There's the because. It's not just when. It's because they saw he was a beautiful child. Mm -hmm. so, so hide him for three months. And they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Pharaoh had said, all males will be killed. They, they, they had faith and they hid him. But it's interesting that it reiterates that it was because they saw that he was a beautiful child. Something about that beauty was important. And uh, uh, let's actually turn to the left, friends. I want to go back to Philippians. So you go through Thessalonians and, and Timothy and Colossians. You get to Philippians. Hope you can find that in there. If you get to things like Galatians and Ephesians, you're going too far. Philippians chapter 4. Um, uh, there's just a nice little... Um, let's read from verse 4 because I like this little bit here. Philippians 4 verse 4. This is Paul's uh, advice. Great advice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Rejoice. Point number one. Rejoice. Have we forgotten what that said? Rejoice. You know, he says it twice. Okay, rejoice. Next. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Okay, let your gentleness be known to everybody. And then. Be anxious for nothing. Nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So rather than getting all anxious, just ask the Lord for what you need. And don't forget to say thank you while you're asking. It didn't say with thanksgiving. In prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Go on. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Yeah, very nice little thing. So rejoice, let your gentleness be known. Here's how to pray and avoid anxiety and so on, and you'll get peace and protection from the Lord. And finally, here's a, a little list in verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, true. whatever things are noble, noble, whatever things are just, just. whatever things are pure, pure, whatever things are lovely. Oh, lovely. Whatever things are lovely. Interesting. Okay, go on. Whatever things are of good report. If there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Right. So the punchlight come, come, comes late in there, but it's to meditate on. What's just true. So think about those. We tend to focus on the horrible things and painful things and you know, what's awful and what's out of whack and everything. But he's saying, you know, do these other things. Rejoice in the Lord. Pray, you know, be gentle and so on. Uh, and finally, meditate on whatever, like think about, I've done this for a while as a spiritual practice, think over your day and just think about what was, what was true. You know, what was true that happened there? What was noble? What was just? What's pure? What's lovely? Interesting word, isn't it? Meditate on that. It's like saying, meditate on what was beautiful in your day. Like what, what, was, what was beautiful? What was lovely? If there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Yeah, that's great. So um, that concludes our readings for tonight. So now comes the tough bit. All right. Uh, have to say something meaningful. First of all, let's have a look at these people, shall we? I've got a graphic here. It adds absolutely nothing to the people who are getting the audio, but it just has some names up there. I have Abraham and Sarah, who were a couple. Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel, as I mentioned before. And Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel are all mentioned as beautiful. But so are Joseph, Moses, Saul, David, and the Lord. Um, okay. And beauty is associated with trees and cities and gems and garments. And the beauty of holiness and so on. Uh, I don't know if I can make the case for you, good friends. But uh, what beauty is, didn't it say something about the Lord looks on the heart? He doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks <coughs> on the heart. It's when the heart is clothed with truth or wisdom. That is the most beautiful thing. When, when it comes from love and it comes down into a particular form, what did it say? The form and the appearance. The form and the appearance. That has to do with the truth, the truth as an embodiment of love. So Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel uh, all played that role. And all of these people had to do, Moses has to do with the law uh, that comes from the Lord. So the law has to do with truth, but it's truth from love. And he's very beautiful and he leads the people. Joseph is very, very beautiful you know, very good looking. Uh, he's a very loving person, forgives all his brothers who try to kill him, sell him into slavery. And he says, oh, don't worry about it. The Lord turned it all into something good. You know, he really has a kind of inner beauty. Now, Saul is, is good looking, but it sort of falls apart after a while. But David has that beauty of the heart. And David, again, he means the Lord's kingship, which is his truth about the spiritual kingdom and so on. I know all of this may not make sense to you, but, but uh, what I'm trying to say is that love uh, that's present with wisdom or with truth is the most beautiful thing. That, that's what's beautiful. I want to talk a little bit about what Swedenborg says about angels. Some of you know about this. Uh, it's really awesome. Uh, angels... See, it says, beautify the humble with your salvation. Angels are just humans like you and me who've been through the process of salvation. The Lord purified them, gave them beauty for ashes, you know, the oil of joy for mourning. They went through a difficult time. The Lord replaced them, as we were talking about last time, manifestation of truth and embodiment of love. The angels have become that. Uh, so the angels are like insanely beautiful. 
the way that Swedenborg describes them, their faces, their bodies, the words that they say are just ridiculously beautiful. And the more thousands of years they live there, the better looking they get because they become more and more of embodiment of love and truth. And nothing is more magnetically attractive than love and truth, love and wisdom working together hand in hand. And people become more, male and female, become more and more an embodiment of that in the spiritual world. In this world, we know very well that there's beauty that's just skin deep. You know, we know it doesn't necessarily go with beauty inside. Uh, we can think of people who are beautiful inside, but not necessarily on the outside. We can think of people who are beautiful on the inside and on the outside. You know, to, that can happen. Uh, but there's also uh, people who are incredibly good looking, you know, movie stars or whatever, who when you find out more about them, some of them are living awful lives. Some, some of them have an inner beauty. Some of them are, are horrible, arrogant or, or whatever. Uh, Swedenborg says that evil, on the other hand, is monstrous. It's deformed. It's hideous. And we even say this sometimes, don't we? Like, let's say people who perpetrated horrible things in, in the Holocaust or something like that. Don't people say they're a monster? That's the word that you use for the worst kind of evil you can think of. They're a monster. Um, the thing in this world, we're fascinated with beauty. And we spend so much time. I mean, I work on this coiffure for hours, friends. You know, it's unbelievable work that goes into this. And such little result when you think about it. But um, we, we work tremendously hard. It's a vast, huge, multi-billion, billion-dollar industry about physical beauty. But we know that it doesn't necessarily match that inner beauty. It's not a one-to-one -one correlation. We can sometimes make that mistake of thinking, oh, that must, you know, you can get sort of fooled by, by the external beauty. Uh, and it's not that people who are inwardly beautiful don't come across as beautiful because when you see love in someone's face you know it melts your heart right when they say something so beautiful or whatever doesn't matter what they look like you're, you're seeing the love coming through so you see that beauty the thing that's so different about the spiritual world from this world is that you can tell you can tell from a mile away people's inner state because the ones that look good are good and the ones that look bad are bad. I, I know there are hypocrites who can momentarily act as an angel of light, blah, 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 you can fool some of the people some of the time or whatever. But uh, generally speaking, when the light, definitely always when the light of heaven shines in, you see the inner state of people. And so it's a little scary to contemplate, but we actually look like our spirit in the other way. You know what I mean? Like we... Uh, that's what we look like. You know, we, we look like the state of our heart and mind. So in this world, sometimes we judge people as if we were in the spiritual world. We think, well, that person is beautiful and that person is ugly. So I want to be with this person, not with that person. Um, in the other world, that works. It, it doesn't always work in this world. In the other world, that's how, that's how it works. You know, the beautiful people really are beautiful people, you know, and they get more and more and more and more beautiful over time. And as I contemplate beauty, like isn't beauty, there's an overall impression of beauty. Like your eye, it's amazing how quickly the eye can just say, pow, wow, that's a good looking person right there, you know? And yet it's made up of a thousand little details. You know, when they, they study, they try to get computers to recognize faces and stuff like that. The difference between one eye and another is like, nanometer of a tiny little, you know, it's like the detail, is this microscopic details that go into it. I think of that as being the, the love is the overall picture and then all that truth, exactly the form that it takes, uh, is what that beauty looks like in the spiritual world. And Swedenborg says that there's nothing on earth that looks like an angel. He can't show you a picture, you know, because there's nothing on earth that compares with it, the, the beauty. So, um, uh, that's a powerful thought. Literally, you know, the beauty of the Lord our God is upon the angels. And I want to just give you one example. Like when we die, um, most of us, when we die, are not at our best. I mean, you can, 
You can do your hair and your makeup and stuff, but it, it's just not your finest moment, frankly. You know, it can be a little embarrassing or whatever. Uh, but you get greeted by this loving angel, just the embodiment of love, welcoming you to the other world, you know, leading into all this joy. What's more attractive, you know, than this being of love just saying, welcome, friend. Here you are. It's okay. It's okay. We got over that physical body thing, and this is fun. Welcome to the world. I'll answer any questions you have about, you know, the life that you just went through and everything. Uh, how much do you love that person who, who loves you when you're at your worst, you know? It's just, just one image of the beauty of the angels, that love that they express. And it all comes from the beauty of the Lord. Now, there's one more passage I want to read here in Isaiah, in the middle of your Bible there, which is the one that talks about the Lord not looking good. We read a bunch that said that he does look good. Isaiah 53, verses 1 and 2, and this is widely thought by Christians to be a prediction of the Lord coming into the world because it has stuff later on that's very precisely, seems like it's about the crucifixion he's brought as a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before the shear as he opens not his mouth and and all this look at those first two verses there who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the lord been revealed for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground he has no form or comeliness and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. You see, this is the one passage, it's, it's the only passage I know of that's, that suggests that the Lord is not going to look good when he comes in this world. You know, he, and then it goes on, he is despised and rejected, right? A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid our face from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Um, so he... he this says he doesn't look good and there's no beauty that we should desire him. I have a couple of thoughts about this. Um, one is that there certainly is a sense in which when the Lord came into this world, he was cloaked. He didn't come into the world as a billionaire with an entourage or something, you know, born in a stable and, and, and sort of homeless as far as we can tell. And just, uh, you know, so it wasn't all flash on the outside. You know, that could be one thing that it's referring to here. Um, Swedenborg also says that this verse, he doesn't explain it much, but he does say that this whole chapter has to do with the Lord's temptations. And I remember when it said that when the Lord rebukes you, your beauty melts away like a moth, right? Like the Lord is going to go through a lot of intense stuff. The Lord is going to spend a lot of time not feeling beautiful. You know, he's going to spend a lot of time in that temptation state or something. So I don't know how to fit all the pieces together, but that makes some sense to me. But I want to talk a little bit about the beauty of the Lord. Because the beauty of the angels just comes from it. You know, they're just reflections. And part of what's cool about the beauty of the angels is that every single angel looks different. You know, they all look different. And Swedenborg says, every angel is beautiful. You know, they just, they all are. And he says, everybody in the hells is deformed and misshapen. When you see them in the light of heaven, when they're in their own deceptive light, they, they look fine to each other or whatever. But, but when the light of heaven shows in, you see what they're really like. And they have various monstrous forms or, you know, body parts missing or faces that are all hair with a couple of teeth sticking out or whatever. They don't look all that great. Um, Swedenborg describes them at the end of Heaven and Hell. The beauty of the Lord, I was thinking, think about, see, all these figures are pictures of the Lord. All these people who were beautiful in the Old Testament, Joseph, Moses, Saul, and even more to a greater extent, David, uh, they were a picture of the Lord. I think, how could it not be, in terms of inner beauty, the Lord was so beautiful. What is more beautiful than love and wisdom? What's more beautiful than compassion. He, he was, um, 
I made a little list here at dinner time tonight. He was attentive. He was bold. He was sweet, kind, funny, fearless, compassionate, balanced, no feet of clay. Describes him in the book of Revelation as feet of bronze, no, no feet of clay. You know, there's not some dreaded secret that you find. Like, this guy's really great. Oh, you know, turns out he's not so great. You know, that's what you get with all the humans. But not the Lord. It's not that way. He was clear, insightful, selfless, humble, powerful, unstoppable, incorruptible, wise beyond his years. I think he was just magnetic. Magnetic. Everywhere he went, a crowd forms around him. People want to hear what he has to say. These fishermen, the hardened fishermen, just drop everything at a nod from him and say, oh yeah, I'm going with you, you know? I think he certainly had some, you know, I don't know about, <clears throat> you know, one way or the other about his physical form. I know the idea of the Shroud of Turin and so on and so forth. And, uh, but, the, um, but you certainly see these magnetic qualities, these beautiful, beautiful qualities in him. That selflessness. You never, I've commented on it before in, in Bible study, you never hear him complain. He never says, I was up all night or I lost a friend. Or, you can't believe how the hells are torturing me right now. Never. Just, how are you doing? Picks up the children. You know, loving everybody, treats everybody equally. He's not playing favorites, you know. And the, the love that's just coming out of him is amazing. So, the other crazy lovable thing about him is that he wants to share everything that is his own with all of us. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So he wants to give us that beauty. It's crazy, you know? And really, as we are in our own lower selves, we have that evil, that ugliness and so on, uh, that, that beauty, the drunkard, the pride of Ephraim and everything, and that, that beauty just uh, disappears and fades. Uh, that's how we look at ourselves, oh, how great I am and all that. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. The Lord gives us that beauty of humility, uh, brings us through temptations, takes away the evil that doesn't look so good, and then there's this beauty, there's this compassion, this truth that's unique to each person. The Lord wants to give that to us. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the one who comes to proclaim salvation. He beautifies the humble with salvation. And from a spiritual standpoint, that's literally true. You know, they get more and more beautiful through going through um, that process of salvation. Uh, so that prayer that Moses said, that beautiful child who was hidden and went to lead the people, and, and Moses was a force, you know, saved so many people in his day from famine and everything. Saul led the people. David united the country. These leaders who prefigure the Lord, and they're, and they're beautiful. They're, they're attractive people. That prayer, do you get a sense, friends, of what it means when it says the beauty of the Lord be upon us? It says, it doesn't say the beauty of our Lord. It says the beauty of the Lord our God. Lord there means the divine love. God means the divine truth. It's the love and the truth together. It gives you a little clue as to what that beauty means. The beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And what can strengthen and establish the work that you do? The Lord says in John 15 that if we're attached to him as the vine then our work is good. You know, then we bear much fruit. Uh, we have to be attached to the Lord. So when we're attached to the Lord, when we let the Lord regenerate us, let the Lord take us through this process, the same process he went through, um, he will establish the work of our hands for us. And things may come and go in this world. Things come and go, empires rise and fall. But we will have the chance to behold the beauty of the Lord more and more and in greater and greater detail. And we'll see it in the faces of so many myriads of angels in the spiritual world that it's worth spending a little time this evening, is it not, friends, contemplating the beauty of the Lord. Let's close with prayer.
our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We love to catch a glimpse of you, to see you in the pages of your word. Scripture gives us no physical description of you when you were alive in this world. We see a vision in Revelation of what you looked like to John after you were resurrected and so on. No physical description. It seems that we are to rely on that beauty that we see in your actions and your words, the beauty of the truth you taught, trying to lift up the people, everybody, 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 everywhere, trying to lift us up, and the beauty of your heart, the embodiment of love. What could be more beautiful than your divine love and your divine truth? Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends. It may even have an effect on our physical looks. For a <laughs>